You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Thank you very much. For, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, my name is Philip Lyon. I'm the Associate Director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies here at the Jackson School and um, at the University of Washington. Uh, if you don't know us already, we really invite you to check out our webpage. We do a lot of events. And please check out our um, one of these handles that's been distributed. Um, we have a lot going on just this week in addition to this talk. Um, we also have... Um, a panel on Ukraine tomorrow in Thompson 101 at 7 p.m. We're going to have four experts discussing the current situation in Ukraine and uh, potential resolutions to that situation. Um, and then we're also, even on Saturday in this very room, um, we're having a former American diplomat present her novel about life uh, in Bucharest. So, um, but today uh, I'm here to introduce Dr. Yelena Campbell, um, who's the woman who made today possible from the department, she's from the Department of History. Um, and we thank her very much for being here. And she's going to introduce her old colleague, D Willard Sunderland. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to the History Department and the Ellison Center for supporting this talk. Thank you for coming. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce Willard Sunderland, professor at the University of Cincinnati. So since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, historians have paid an increased attention to a fundamental dimension of Russian historical experience, a tremendous cultural diversity of the Russian Empire and its successor, the Soviet Union. And the imperial term has not only enhanced our understanding of the Russian past, but also promoted interregional and international collaboration. An example of such collaboration is, uh, was a project that was launched in 1996 and was called Russian Empire, Space, People, and Power. And in which Willard and I, at that time I was a graduate student in Russia, uh, participated. This project um, lasted until 1999 and brought together scholars from different regions of Russia, the United, uh, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and resulted in two volumes of essays, while historians, individual members of this project, uh, continued to pursue their own research projects. So Willard Anderland's work has greatly contributed to and shaped the imperial turn, which became one of the most influential trends in the field of Russian historical studies. And his first book, Taming the Wild Field, Colonization and Empire, on the Russian steppe, was a pioneering study of Russian colonization of the immense grasslands known as the steppe region, located south of the, oh, sorry, north of the Black Sea. Uh, Willard Zanderland also is a co-editor of Russia's People of Empire Life Stories from Eurasia and People in the Russian Periphery, Borderland Colonization in Eurasian History. So his latest book here, The Baron's Cloak, A History of the Russian Empire and War and Revolution, explores the multicultural world of the Russian Empire and the scale of an individual life, the life of a, a Tsarist military officer, Roman Fyodorovich von Ungern Stenberg. And those of you who came to Stephen Kotkin's talk just not long ago, perhaps on Stalin, he presented his new book on Stalin, uh, perhaps remember the slideshow that accompanied the talk. And one of the images actually um, 
pictured Baron Unger, <laughs> about whom he mentioned in passing that he was a crazy man. Yes. <laughs> so today we'll learn more about this crazy man, as he was also remembered the Mad Baron of Mongolia, so, um, and as well as the empire around him. So please welcome Willard Stantelow. Well, thank you very much for the invitation and uh, the very warm welcome. I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, uh, I'm going to be speaking today about um, uh, a problem that's been in my head for the long time, or for a long time, and it's a very simple problem in some respects. Uh, my uh, scholarly uh, energies have been um, directed ever since I was in graduate school to finding something that doesn't exist. It's, uh, I'm um, interested in making sense of something I cannot see, I can barely touch, I can only find the uh, faintest echoes of, though they're powerful and important ones. What I'm talking about is a search for uh, the Russian Empire, for a, a kingdom lost to the past. How to find something that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can find only in traces. Ultimately, in the book that I want to um, share with you today, I um, chose to set for myself the, the challenge of finding this place uh, in a single life. Uh, and as I engaged in that process, I ran into any number of other questions. Um, how to reconcile the scales of a life and an empire. Uh, a contained diversity that we might find within an in individual and what in some respects appears like a truly boundless diversity um, on the scale of a state. And along the way I had to resolve uh, well or not, that's really up to you and other readers to decide, but I had to resolve some questions about how to explain it all, uh, how to make sense of, of um, some of the contradictions and the um, lack, of, uh, uh, lack of approximation between the scales. Really what I had to do was work hard on the methodological questions that all historians engage with. But they were lit up in these particular terms for me because of the nature of the work I was doing. Uh, Professor Campbell invited me in this talk today to, in a sense, narrate my narration. <laughs> my book is a presentation of the empire through the life, but my talk today will be, in, in many regards, uh, a narration of my attempt to do that and how I uh, wrestled with some of the questions along the way. Uh, what I wanted to do was begin at the end, <laughs> um, get some sense of where we're, we're all headed. This, this slide is a, a stylized uh, tourist map of the last thing that uh, my protagonist saw, the city of Novonikolaevsk, which was renamed a few years after Ungern was last there, as Novosibirsk, one of the great cities of contemporary Russia, greatest city of Siberia. Ungern was brought to this city in early September 1921. He was a white military officer. He'd been captured by his enemies, the Reds, towards the very end of an incredibly a destructive and murderous civil war. He had been brought to Novonikolaevsk from his place of capture some thousand miles away in northern Mongolia, the other side of northern outer Mongolia. He'd been brought here for a show trial. I say a show trial because everything was clear. That is to say, the manager of the trial knew where things were going. 
Ungern would be found guilty of all counts and he would be executed. I, without knowing for sure, would hasten to tell you that Ungern surely knew this as well. He arrived in this city early September 1921. The city looked nothing like this map. This map makes it look like the kind of place where you might go strolling. We might enjoy a moment on the river. When Ungern got here, this was a devastated city, barely rebuilding from the war. Shattered railroad cars, burned out buildings, um, poor begging people in the street. The city had changed hands several times over the course of the war, and even though the Reds had been in charge here for some time, they were struggling with tremendous poverty and um, confusion. Ungern was brought to the site of his trial, which you can't see anymore because it's long since paved over. It was a, a music theater, a summer theater, built in a garden or a public park down near the River Ol. I've shown this map to specialists on the history of Novo Nikolaisk in the time, and hoping that they would actually show to me the building of the theater, and I showed two people, both of whom I greatly esteem for their knowledge, and they showed me different buildings. So, <laughs> and I, in my quest to find where, you know, find a photo of this theater, actually never saw a good one, and so I can't tell you. It's either this one or that one. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Ungern was brought to this packed theater for uh, the final show of his life. A five-hour trial uh, in which he took the stand he spoke of his uh, 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 various um, exploits, and suffered the harangues and abuses of a very dynamic prosecutor. There were no witnesses. There were a few testimonies of witnesses. But largely, it was a um, process of, uh, of the prosecutor exposing Ungern's crimes and ultimately Ungern being led to acknowledge that these events had occurred. He was tried on three counts, aiding and abetting the expansionist plans of Japan by attempting to create a central Asiatic state and seeking to overthrow the DVR, the Far Eastern Republic, I'll tell you about that later, in the Transbaikal region of Siberia. Second count, he was accused of seeking to overthrow Soviet power in Russia and Siberia in particular with the intention of restoring the monarchy, the Russian monarchy by placing Mikhail Ramanov on the, on the throne. And his third, last count, is accused of committing mass atrocities and torture against, and here's the list, A, peasants and workers, B, communists, C, state workers, D, Jews, who were slaughtered to a person, E, children, and F, Chinese revolutionaries. Ungern uh, ultimately uh, agreed to all the counts except having aided and abetted the imperialist plans of Japan. He went down, you might say, stoically. Uh, uh, left the stage for a brief period. He was returned to the stage. The announcement, uh, the verdict was read. And um, as best we can tell, he was executed, shot, uh, just um, hours later. The only proof we have of the execution, though, is a telegram that doesn't actually specify where or how he was killed. Maybe he was shot in the basement of the local Cheka building. Maybe he was hauled out of town and executed on the outskirts. Maybe his body was burned. Maybe it was thrown in the river. All of these methods of dispatching 
class enemies were used at the time. We just don't know which final path Ungern took. What we do know better, though, is what got him here. What got him here, uh, and this is why he ultimately proved to be such an interesting subject for my purposes, was a profoundly imperial life, a, a, a far-flung life that led him through a variety of imperial communities and institutions, and for all of the vagaries of human experience, for some reason, <laughs> led him to Nikolaevsk in the end. If we count down from the end to the beginning, we can see that he crisscrossed the Russian Empire on several occasions. He was a classic border crosser, inasmuch as he lived both in the Russian Empire and moved across its borders to influence, play a major role in his time, in his moment, in the histories of connecting societies, the world of Outer Mongolia and China. Uh, in his very early years, um, he was a profoundly, um, uh, uh, I would say, a meaningful representative of um, a special community within the Russian Empire, these transnational Baltic German aristocrats, having been born in Austria, uh, uh, grown up in, uh, in his very early childhood in Tiflis, which is the capital of the Southern Caucasus, or what the Russians called living on a, a, a very privileged manner in rural Estland, so what amounts to a large part of contemporary Estonia, taking his first schooling in a Russian language, but nonetheless highly Germanized gymnasium in Rival, the capital of Estland, known to Estonians as Tallinn. And then moving into the world uh, of the larger imperial power structure, not just the special elite structure of the Baltic, as he entered officer school uh, as a dismal student <laughs> in St. Petersburg, um, ultimately left school in time to take advantage of the possibility of volunteering for service in the Russo-Japanese War, returned to officer school in St. Petersburg, and here managed to correct his behavior and actually graduate. And then, for reasons we don't know, but we have to assume are connected to his experience in the Russo-Japanese fronts, he opted to return to the Asian side of the empire for service as a military officer, and spent um, uh, the very formative years of his young officerhood uh, on the border with Outer Mongolia and, and uh, the, the, the new, uh, soon-to-be Chinese Republic on the Transbaikal, then still further east on the Amur River, and engaging in a quixotic uh, uh, attempted adventure by briefly actually resigning from the army and seemingly pursuing his own um, urge to be in the fight and doing the kind of thing that I guess nobles have enough capital to do, uh, riding out to outer Mongolia to take part in the sort of messy playing of the Mongolian War of Independence against China in 1913. Then he finds himself fighting on all the fronts of the Great War when the mobilization begins, all the Russian fronts of the Great War, from, from the Baltic all the way to Persia, doing one thing that many men of his generation and of his length in service didn't do, which was to stay alive. And then, as uh, the Great War turns into the, the cataclysm of the Russian Revolution, and that turns into the unfolding um, um, explosion of the Civil War, he ends up again 
back in eastern Siberia, fighting um, in what turns out to be for a short time the kind of rump state, a kind of Cossack kingdom of his boss, a man named Grigory Simeonov, who becomes known as Ataman Simeonov. So Ungern fights under Simeonov's command against the Reds in eastern Siberia. And it's at this point that uh, his, his life, which might otherwise have gone largely unnoticed, might have passed largely anonymously, uh, makes its turn into uh, a historical frame. Because as the front against the Reds starts to break down in late 1920 in eastern Siberia, and most whites fighting with and around Semyonov, including Semyonov himself, read the situation and retreat to Manchuria or to the very end of the Russian Far East, Ungern, in charge of about a hundred, excuse me, about a thousand men, makes a fateful decision to lead that military force into outer Mongolia. And this is the period that historians, in retrospect, and Ungern's enemies, briefly, describe as his Mongolian campaign. A period when, in charge of this small force, but allied with Mongols who were deeply resentful of the return of Chinese power to Outer Mongolia, uh, was able to actually uh, expel the Chinese from this region, reimpose the rule of the Mongolian theocratic ruler, and spend about six months operating as a kind of imported warlord in this region, a power behind the throne. And we know that he didn't sit around during this time. He was actually engaged in a very complicated diplomacy, um, ultimately terribly unsuccessful. But we can see the outlines of his thinking in the many letters that he sent during this period to presumptive allies who would help him put all these broken spaces back together again. The Tsar was gone. He had to be restored. The Manchu emperor had been dethroned. He had to be brought back to power. And the Mongol uh, tribes split up between these empires, had to be brought together again. Ungern, in the middle of the chaos, which he explained in part by the disintegration of empire, established himself, without using quite these words, as the great imperial restorer. Follow him, he said, and you'll find yourself in a recomposed imperial world. The problem is recomposing imperial worlds can take a lot of time. <laughs> and uh, in some respects, that was a commodity Ungern didn't have. Uh, we could also say that uh, he wasn't really a very good politician, because with the exception of these letters and his men and some of the sympathies of his Mongol supporters, at least in the early going, he didn't have too much on his side. He certainly didn't have very good knowledge of his enemies and how they were marshalling against him. Uh, he was also impatient. <clears throat> and so rather than pursuing at greater length this imperial plan, as ambitious as it might seem, he ultimately decided that it was time to make a démarche, so action to provoke a change. And this came in August uh, 1921, when after this period of power in Mongolia, he decided to take a chance at unseating red power in the eastern 
in, in the Trans-Baikal region of Eastern Siberia. And it's in the course of that attempt at taking power back against the Reds that his attack was broken up and he was ultimately captured, betrayed by his own men, captured, and he ends up at the trial that I just discussed. That's his life across spaces, imperial institutions, and imperial dreams. And this map uh, puts it all into one possible picture. From a birth in Graz to an upbringing uh, in the Baltic after a brief excursus to the Caucasus, then formative years of military service 5,000 miles away beyond the Baikal and on the Amur, uh, some sort of <coughs> early adulthood quest to be important by riding to be a part of a military rebellion against um, Chinese power in Western Mongolia, then ultimately being pulled by the mobilization of empires into the Great War back west, fighting from the Baltic all the way to northern Persia, to this front, right around the town of Urmia. And then in uh, all of the swirling events of the revolution, finding himself pulled back to this region, having his life play out in outer Mongolia, and then end in these tre tremendous geographical movements, he's not just crossing space, he's also crossing imperial communities, the world of his Baltic German aristocratic upbringing, imperial elite imperial educational establishments, the world of the officer corps, which is along with the nobility, one of the two great pillars of the old regime. And within his military service, he enters the community of the Cossacks because he ultimately chooses service in Cossack regiments here. And then uh, we can even identify his service in the, the very fraught years of the Civil War as participation in a new kind of Im imperial community, the imperial community created by the collapse of these borders and the creation of something approximating a kind of independent frontier world. Now, in many respects, he's a very interesting um, uh, subject for trying to open up the problem of empire. And then to seal the deal for me and my historical imagination about the possibilities of Ungern as a subject, we have what he was wearing. <laughs> we don't know exactly. I mean, I found different references to Ungern's habit of dressing in a Mongolian deal, uh, what the Russians might call a kaftan. I called it cloak, but that's not, not necessarily, it's not entirely cloakish. It doesn't flow from your shoulders, you know, buttons up in front of you. Um, it has sleeves. Uh, but I do have a number of references to his wearing uh, a, a Mongolian uh, deal in um, uh, uh, the course of 1920. And we certainly know that he was wearing uh, a deal like this uh, during periods of the Mongolian campaign. And very importantly, this is exactly what he was wearing on the day of his death. At that trial in Novosibirsk, he was brought out on stage wearing this remarkable imperial product. An imperial product 
wearing a product to boot. So it's a, a halka style deal uh, made of silk in the orangey gold color that was associated with people of rank, but outfitted with some of the trappings and attributes of uh, the Russian Empire and of European military culture. Epaulets with um, uh, brass buttons bearing the double-headed eagle, the markings of Ataman Semyonov's force, his rank by the end, which as best I can tell, he gave to himself <laughs> following his success in taking Urga, taking the capital of Mongolia in February 1921, rank of lieutenant general. This uh, cloak, a hybrid representation of the complexities of the empire that Ungern lived in, um, became for me a symbol, a way of beginning to try to make sense of all the things that flow together in this man's life, and that we might then sort of pull apart to make sense of the empire that he inhabited, and maybe even the empires he dreamed of reconstituting. It's also, um, uh, for me, a kind of powerful uh, touchstone because I touched it. <laughs> this deal is uh, held at the Museum of, um, of the uh, Armed Forces in Moscow, the old Museum of the Red Army. On the day that I went to see the deal, I fully expected to find it either in an exhibit hall or in a box somewhere in the back room of the uh, museum. And as I made my way through the different checks, met the director, showed him my papers, and uh, then waited for um, the uh, director of the material objects collection uh, to help me, uh, I uh, uh, had to explain to her what I needed. And she said, what, what, what is that again? Who's, who's Kaftan? Who's, you know? oh, she said, well, hold on. I think I have that in my office. <laughs> so we went to her office, and indeed because the, the rooms uh, where the cloak had been exhibited were being re restored, she had Ungern's cloak next to her shuba. <laughs> and she just pulled it out and she said, are you looking for this? I said, well, I think so, yes. So then uh, 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 we were in her small office, and she spread the cloak out on a table. And we spent uh, what I can only describe for the historian sort of quester, really a remarkable moment, like really face to face, uh, nose to text, uh, nose to textile with uh, uh, um, uh, Ungern's garment. And um, as we were leaning in, she was showing me some of the paperwork associated with the deal. Uh, learned that it was given to the museum as what what was written on the paperwork at the time in 1939. It was given as a gift to the museum, as a trophy from the time of the Civil War. Was it a man who actually shot Ungern? Took the cloak? Was it somehow a relative who ended up with the cloak? Was the cloak sold <laughs> in a shady black market deal <laughs> sometime after? Who knows? But by 1939, it ended up in this museum as a statement of the red victory over you know, a class enemy. And 
as we were uh, sort of talking about the possibilities of, of uh, how it got to the, to the museum and the rest, uh, 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 the uh, uh, kind lady who was helping me, she said, you know, you're quite interested in the cloak, aren't you? I said, well, well yes, of course. And, and uh, we were touching it, playing with it, looking at all the different markings on it and the rest. She said, you know, you can try it on if you want to. <laughs> and she sort of looked around like that. And I, I think I sort of looked around like that, too. And then I thought, just for a minute, that no matter how close I wanted to be to my historical subject, that I shouldn't cross this last line <laughs> and put on Ungen's cloak. But it did raise, uh, for me, again, the uh, big question of, of what I was doing what my place in the story was, and how I was going to use some of the interesting artifacts of Ungern's life to try and tell the story of empire. In the first instance, it meant dealing with the legacy that was already uh, um, uh, within reach for making sense of Ungern's life. And broadly speaking, it's a phenomenally sensationalist one. Ungern, by the end of his life, was associated with uh, what seemed to be, in retrospect, somewhat fantastical plans a small group of military men made up of all kinds of different nationalities from this borderland world, is led into Mongolia to kick out the Chinese, restore the power of the Mongolian Khan, and then Ungern, somewhere behind the throne, is writing letters in multiple languages, using the translators on his small staff, to reach out to a, a network of would-be allies to reconstitute the destroyed empires of Eurasia. Meanwhile, there are a number of reports of Ungern being slightly strange, very violent, and perhaps even a Buddhist. We know from his decrees that he has absolutely no compunction, no hesitation in ordering the direct murder of his enemies, in the first instance, communists and Jews even though there aren't many Jews to be found where he is. He associates them with the great evil of the Russian Revolution, and so they too are targeted for destruction. All of this becomes the material for the making of incredibly powerful, and I would argue quite sensationalist images of Ungern. It's not to say that none of this can possibly be put into a more realistic portrait. It's to say that it's a lot easier to use it to make another kind of portrait, one that's better at selling books portrait of a mad baron, a bloody baron, a, a complete um, idiosyncratic form operating in a wild place. Not someone necessarily telling us much about the world around him, but certainly telling us much about the extreme possibilities of extreme deviations within the human personality. So you have uh, representations of Ungern as the autocrat of the desert, the wicked dictator of the East. This is actually a children's book. <laughs> Especially, wow. <clears throat> Mexican writers seeking to say something about the place of violence and God in the workings of the world turn Ungern into the black horseman. And there are many other versions besides. On some level, getting into Ungern's story, for me uh, as a historian, meant figuring out the stories that had already been told about them and what my relationship to those stories would be. Thankfully, this wasn't the only way to find Ungern in the historical record, in the accounting of him by uh, um, uh, chroniclers of the past. 
at the time that I was working on, began to work on this project, um, um, some very uh, impressive, uh, recognizably historical, with all the trappings of historical professionalism, very interesting scholarship began appearing, uh, more than anything associated with this gentleman here, um, uh, Sergei Kuzmin, who wrote, to start with, two massive books of all the documents he could find relating to Ungern's life, including long excerpts of numerous memoirs of men who'd served with him or served in the pursuit of him. And, perhaps because uh, you can't leave a good job undone, having assembled all the sources and published them, he decided to write his own book to tell Ungern's story. That's the book that I'm showing you here. The History of Baruch Ungern, an Attempt at Reconstruction studded with countless references, often to his own compilation, but with broader sources besides, but directed by this very powerful uh, guiding position. That this book is um, being written to clear things up. There's history, and there's myth. There's fiction, and even though I think it's an ugly form, there's nonfiction. This book is about dispensing with all the fog, the mythology, the sensationalism, and getting to the real Wunkin. It's a profound statement uh, that speaks to a very um, enduring perspective on what historians do and what perhaps biographers of complicated lives do in particular. They order things. They clarify the story. It depends on this view of the process of making sense of a life. This is an engraving that I stumbled into. I can't remember where exactly. And I just had it around uh, for many years uh, without really pondering uh, what it seems to be telling us. But in my view now, it's telling us an awful lot about some of the presumptions of biography. This is a representation of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the English writer and critic, wit, Samuel Johnson, being observed by his biographer, James Boswell, who ultimately, I don't want to downplay uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, he surely would be someone we'd still be reading about, but Mr. Boswell more than guaranteed that uh, Mr. Johnson's life would remain permanently interesting, permanently accessible, because he um, created the man as a living form in his biography. This was uh, uh, a work hailed by uh, 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 some readers at the time, and certainly many since, as the first creation of a truly modern biographical sensitivity. The full person, faults and all, in their wonderful uh, 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 multitudes, you know, everything relating to the person, rendered living for you in the text. That's what a biographer does. And it presumes uh, this opportunity, an opportunity of this kind of close observation which actually in uh, Johnson and Boswell's case, on some level, was occurring because they knew each other, and this was an open project. Uh, there were multiple interviews and exchanges. 
full access. This was what was called an authorized biography. <laughs> but it still begs the question of whether you can ever really produce this moment, a moment of complete presentation, a moment in which you separate all the mists all, and dispense all the fog and end up with a clear view of your you know, massive, complicated subject. I actually think that you can't do this. So I thought, I shouldn't even try in my book. Uh, and part of that thinking was also influenced by a variety of other readings that I was doing that uh, uh, invited me to think about the methodological challenge of getting into a life and then turning the life around so that it says something about the society that surrounded it. This isn't the only book that raises those questions, but it's an interesting one to share with you for a moment. It certainly made me think hard as I was um, finishing uh, my work on Union. This is a work by Laurent Binet, a young uh, French writer. When it was published in 2010, it was hailed as a kind of sensation, uh, and it was offered uh, you know, the French uh, sort of reading literary establishment's greatest prize for a new book, the Prix Goncourt. Uh, it's a, a story um, of historical fiction set up to take you into the assassination of uh, um, uh, Reinhard Heydrich, Reichskommissar of Bohemia, one of the leading Nazis of the Third Reich, who uh, ultimately was uh, killed by a sensational assassination attempt in May 1942 that then became all the more disturbing a story of World War II because it resulted in massive Nazi reprisals against, um, um, uh, as, as best historians can tell, uh, really completely innocent Czech villagers and the destruction of two entire settlements as retribution. H, 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 Himmler's Hirn heist Heidrich. Uh, Himmler's brain is called Heidrich. In other words, the word going around the Nazi elite was that Himmler's just a talking parrot, the real brain behind the workings of the Nazi state is Heidrich. He's the number one guy. But he's also something of a cipher, someone you can't really see very clearly. So in Binet's work, he becomes um, the quarry of this small assassination team, but also the subject of a history that is placing him within their sights. But throughout the book, Binet is struggling with what he can do as a man trying to recreate this episode, and along the way, obviously, recreate Heydrich. And he adopts a, uh, a, a narrative position of constant sort of self-inspection. <laughs> it's uh, charming. Sometimes it's excessive. Uh, my wife said that it was French, which I take to be <laughs> rather stereotypical judgment. Uh, but uh, but I guess I see what she's saying. Uh, an, incl an inclination to, to recite the operations of the story, sharing small details of Binet's own life that explain why the story is meaningful to him, um, while at the same time being uh, constantly aware and showing you that awareness of the line that he has to work between what he knows of the history and what he doesn't know. And in fact, what he's tempted to use in a literary way, because fundamentally, he is a writer, not a scholar. 
the book didn't serve in any respects as a model for what I sought to do, but it did help me think through some of the uh, complicated questions that any uh, scholarly recomposition of a life has to wrestle with. And it was in the process of this sort of methodological churning that I realized what I might do to find my own path through this thicket is to, in some regards, leave Ungern himself unknown and instead to use his unclear presence to guide me through the institutions and the spaces of the empire. And that meant not writing a biography, because the presumption of the biography, even if we don't entirely agree with Boswell's portrait of the total man, is still that what's really at stake in the writing here is rescuing and exhibiting the importance of the individual. It is, on a very basic level, a statement of the, the independent importance of individual people. And biographer is recomposing that importance for us. A point very nicely brought out in this really uh, wonderfully imaginative article by the American historian Jill Lepore. But if you can't see the person terribly well, because they haven't left reams of documents and you're not standing before them, and the closest you get is that creepy cloak. <laughs> Uh, and you're really interested, when push comes to shove, in the broader world around the person, well then maybe the historiographical um, tradition and uh, the method that you might consider stepping into is that of microhistory. So not biography that is valorizing the individual, and in some basic sense, even a very good biography might take a broader view, ultimately saying this person is important you turn the camera away from the individual to what the individual might have been looking at. <laughs> and through that vantage, through the positioning of the camera in a different way, you can use that one small person to tell the story of a bigger world. These are some examples of microhistory that suggest actually it's a very malleable form. There are all kinds of ways that allow you to begin small to end up big. The story of a person, anonymous, forgotten, completely unknown, that then opens up perspective on the operations of justice and love in medieval France. Arguably the most famous uh, micro-history of, of certainly my, uh, my education, uh, written in the mid-1970s by the Italian historian Carlo Ginsberg, which is uh, famous in English as the cheese and the worms, which is an exploration of the remarkable imagination of, on the face of it, a completely ordinary miller from a town in northern Italy who gets caught up because of some of his ramblings in the investigation of the Inquisition. And through the intense recording of this man's visions and understandings of the world, Ungern, excuse me, not excuse me, Ginsburg, excuse me, Ginsburg is able to sort of play the story of of a cosmology that we didn't even, would not otherwise have even seen. 
And there are other examples up here too that sort of suggest ways of going small to end up big. Maybe that's the way to pursue union. And that's ultimately what, where I made my peace with the method for my, for my approach, for, my, for, for the story I hope to tell. But it still meant finding him. I mean, finding the empire by finding him. And that required moving out towards the sources of, of his life, uh, uh, which I found scattered, like his life itself, across, you know, uh, you know I guess a generous interpretation of Eurasia from uh, Austria to China, and multiple points in between. His baptismal record, just as a few examples, a doctor's note, much nicer than any doctor note I've seen uh, uh, as a parent over the last few years. Ungern's um, boot on display in the Museum of National History in Ulaanbaatar. Pretty sure it's not Ungern's boot. <laughs> images of his life across this enormous space. A childhood tourist photo in the garb of a Caucasian warrior, Gorzi. Uh, uh, this is a, a very common uh, a touristic uh, photo shoot for the time, the late 1880s, early 1890s. Finishing military school taking his first commission, with the Tsar actually handing the epaulets to his graduating class in Krasne Silo, outside of Petersburg. A photograph taken at his first commendation during the Great War, when he received the St. George's Cross, the award for, the highest award for valor in the Russian Imperial Army. And he became something of a you know, small celebrity in the story of heroism. Russian heroism in the war. And it's clear that the uh, medal meant something to him because as he went to his death on that day of his trial, wearing his deal, he kept his cross. On his head he wore a Russian officer's cap, but Mongolian boots. The only thing missing here that he would have had otherwise was a sash that would have crossed his midsection and that we know from some of the records written about his transportation um, was likely removed from him for fear that he would use it to commit suicide. But more than anything, to find him, I had to cross these spaces and it was really in moving um, uh, in pursuit of Ungern, or some echoes of him, uh, that I discovered my subject. I saw the remaining evidence of this incredibly complicated imperial world, and that I began to sort of step into some of the contrasts that seemed to have been held in tension in his life. You know, a, various, a very obvious <laughs> contrast of of cultures um, from the Baltic to Mongolia and multiple places uh, in between. And it was in these crossings, which I didn't pursue uh, with a ready-made plan from the start, but ultimately evolved as a practice, um, I determined 
that the best way to find him, such as he was, as a historical subject, was actually to locate him in these places. And that's why the book ultimately took the form of a geographical unpeeling of the empire, telling the story of the different imperial communities and institutions that he inhabited as he moved back and forward across this space. The, uh, I guess, conceit of the book is that um, somehow, if you add up all of these spaces and the imperial experiences that are included in the spaces, and you put them all together, you spend time looking at the empire, and you somehow end up with the product that is Ungern. I have to admit that I sort of struggle with that basic assumption, because it's probably unfair to all of us to assume that we're just the compilation of the spaces that we've crossed through, that there's actually something about us that's irreducible, that we can't just associate with space. And the experience right around us, there's something that we carry that's bigger than that, or somehow perhaps essential to putting the meaning of all of that experience together. In Ungern's case, I couldn't see that. Never wrote a diary. The only uh, exposure that we have to his representation of himself in the first person are that small batch of political letters that he's writing at the very end of his life as he's pursuing his plan to recompose um, his empires. He is, uh, in many respects, a blank slate. So my creation of him by the end is a mechanical one. It's the addition of the spaces and the experiences around him, not even ones that I know he understood or that registered him with him because he's not revealed. But for my purposes as a micro-historian of the Russian Empire, they seem to be very revealing. So I'll just share a couple with them now and then uh, end, end my remarks and look forward to your question. One, what, what, he, what his experience shows us is the tremendous mobility of a certain range of people within this space in this time, and how important that mobility proved to be. Right alongside Ungern, one of the great sort of stars of my story is this railroad, which profoundly transformed the way the empire was understood and used, connecting east and west, and itself the product, actually, of an ambitious turn towards the east that then reverberated Ungern didn't just live within the moment of the Trans-Siberian, that's creating possibilities of a new kind of mobility within the empire combining east and west. He also lived in a moment in which the uh, rulers of the empire were making their last bold attempt to kind of straighten up the house, to make the empire work better by leveling it a little bit, reducing some of the remarkable contrasts of this space so that a region in the West would have the same form of administration as a region in the East. That Russian, broadly speaking, would be instructed as a language of empire, a lingua franca. That Russian orthodoxy would be supported in its primary place as the um, religion of state. Ungern inhabited the empire during an age of Russification. But his story belies some of the easy um, uh, toss-off 
conclusions about Russification. Because for all of the attempt at leveling that was implicit in the plan, the lived experience of Russification was always much bumpier, more diverse, and that leveling really never <coughs> resulted in a smooth picture. He is inhabiting all these different institutions and imperial communities, um, was revealing of that process. He was operating with some kind of con uh, connected space, with some kind of connected um, habits, behaviors, and presumptions, but the difference that defined the empire never really went away. And the last thing, uh, just to share with you as a big point before any of my remarks, uh, uh, that his story tells us is something about um, the, uh, the special moment of the end of his life. Ungern's experience shows us something of how the empire is being held together. I mean, this railroad is holding the empire together. The micropolitics of Russification, in their way, are holding the empire together. They're also, obviously, producing tensions and raising questions. And by the end of Ungern's life, this very fraught, domestic um, thicket of possibilities and problems um, is produced, is sort of pushed towards crisis by massive geopolitical events, like World War I. And so Ungern's last moment is the moment of imperial collapse, all of which happens in the midst of certain operations that are designed to keep the empire together. So it's a very confusing and remarkable moment. In some respects, he's created as a historical figure by the collapse. If there had not been a collapse, there wouldn't have been the room for him to emerge as this independent frontier broker, the presence behind the throne in Mongolia. Um, but by the same token, going into his life, you can also see the complexity of the collapse itself. That even as the state fell apart, it fell apart in certain rather peculiar ways. Different regions of the empire separated with much greater finality than others. And the collapse itself occurred so quickly that the disentanglement really couldn't, couldn't play itself out. And consequently, notions of keeping the space together in some form were a part of the unraveling. Ungern shared with us in those letters written at the end of his life his own vision for recomposing this vast space. But ultimately, he was defeated by enemies who were much more successful at that project. The, the particular structures of their vision of this space, the solution to the problem of imperial disintegration presented by the Bolsheviks, was in some respects radically different from that proposed by Ungern. Ungern never had in mind a union of Soviet socialist republics. I'm not suggesting that. But, both of these uh, solutions, so uh, diametrically opposite in some regards, also shared a certain amount in common. They were both responses to collapse, and they were both based on presumptions of the importance and practic practicability of combining these spaces. All of these things, I think, we can see best, um, we can see well through a life like Ungern's. In other words, we can see the empire, a very big and complicated thing, through a small and, in some respects, forgettable person. And that was my book, and that was my pitch to my publisher. And to my great relief, they liked it. But they couldn't quite let go of the idea that what they really wanted to sell my book 
was the madman of the East. <laughs> this was the first version of the cover of the book that was shared with me after you know, I reached that sort of happy end point. Everything's in, and you're now waiting for that final little gift in the mail. Here it is, all bound up. Your little bundle of joy finally delivered. And this was the cover. I actually shrieked when I saw it, opening it in my email. And my wife said, what's the matter? She came rushing in. This is the absolute opposite of my book. This is a completely stylized photo with tinted, demonic eyes of, of, of Ungern against a kind of quasi-Mongolian, quasi-lunar landscape, <laughs> suggesting the whole story is about the mad guy in the front of the picture. I said, oh my gosh. I mean, I know I'm talking about the cloak, but this is not what I had in mind. <clears throat> I said, oh, Willard, we're really, we're, gosh, we're so upset that you're this upset about the cover. <laughs> so we worked on it a little bit, and here's what we'd like to go with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they nicely toned down the, uh, the uh, highly tinted eyes, and I... I guess they made it seem just that little bit less weird, but I have to say, I had gone from shrieking to just total despondency. I, I was just, I, I, was, I couldn't quite reconcile myself to the fact that my efforts to sort of decentralize Ungern and tell another story had landed me nonetheless with this story, excuse me, this cover. And I went about my business assuming all was done when I got final good email, about four days later, completely unannounced. And it was something to this effect. Willard, we went back over things and talked about it with the, the artists, and um, I made him know, hey, listen, Willard's book is, is not really about Ungern. It, it, it's about the empire. And they said, oh, yeah. But the cloak is still important, and we still want to make things mysterious. So let's block Ungern out and just let something of the mystery of his garment lead you into the story. And um, I was much happier about this story. So, thank you very much. I'll stop there. So please, any questions? I'd love to. Yeah, I think we'll, I think we'll move on to questions right now. Did you want to start? Oh, let's see. <laughs> Well, we have you kick off. Yeah, yes, question. yes, please, please. So what was Ungern's vision of empire? Did he have a vision? Yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, he wasn't using the terms that we might use to uh, write a paper on Ungern's vision of empire, but he was working with some presumptions of how these spaces would hold together. And they were um, uh, founded on um, the, um, uh, you know, the supreme importance of the monarchical principle. So uh, empires exist because of emperors. <laughs> If you have an emperor in place, then presumably supporting that emperor, you have all the traditional, enduring, important mechanisms of imperial power. In the first instance, the commitments of a loyal aristocratic elite. I think if we parse the letters that Ungern was sending to uh, Kaz uh, you know, Kazakh uh, tribal leaders, Mongol uh, uh, lamas, uh, uh, some Qing loyalists, uh, fellow white Russian allies, uh, what you can piece together is a vision of putting the collapsed empires of uh, Eurasia back together um, uh, by restoring the emperor to the throne 
and rekindling the commitment of this class of imperial servitors, of which he, of course, in a very basic sense, was the uh, most eloquent uh, representative. Um, uh, the Baltic German uh, nobles were um, uh, hugely successful imperial subculture within the Russian Empire because they uh, found themselves in a favored position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, the court, and they served uh, right around the, empire, uh, the emperor. They served in the most important um, establishments of imperial power, uh, uh, the uh, bureaucracy, um, the, the system of, of higher um, education in the empire. They were imperial servitors, and the fundamental deal with the Baltic German nobles from an imperial perspective was we've taken over the Baltic, we, the Russians. Um, you've been in charge there for quite some time. You'll stay in charge there. We won't really meddle too much with what you're doing. And in return, you will work for us. A classic uh, quid pro quo arrangement, which did indeed change somewhat over time, but nonetheless retained those basic, that basic morphology. And in the letters that he's writing, urging these would-be allies to support the idea of restoring in the first instance, the Manchu Khan to the throne. But then also, he does entertain in a couple letters, though he doesn't pursue this in, in any detail, the restoration of um, uh, the Romanovs. Uh, the, uh, what seems to be alive as a presumption in the letter is that uh, uh, empires do well by their servitors, and servitors must obviously render to the empire. So that really is a vision. It's a, it's a restorationist vision, sort of putting the empires back together again um, uh, much as they were. The only wrinkle in the, uh, in the sort of proposal of the time, I guess I'd say, is this idea that he had of combining the Mongol peoples, all the different uh, groupings of the Mongol peoples, within what he called a central Mongol empire. And this was to be ruled by the restored Mongolian monarch, the Bogda. But in his articulation of the Bogda's role in some larger sense, he uh, explained that the Bogda would ultimately resume his place under the power of the Manchu emperor, under the power of a restored Qing dynasty in China. So while some people might uh, read into Ungern's plan some vision of creating a renewed Mongol empire, um, I don't believe that that's really what is that in play. The evidence we have for any of this thinking is fairly small to begin with, and ultimately what seems to be most important is a kind of pragmatic approach to the operation of restoration. His first opportunities to put things back together again are in Outer Mongolia, where he obviously faces um, um, a relatively limited Chinese force and has a lot of sympathetic Mongols on his side, supplementing his very small fighting force brought in from the Russian side. And then as uh, he imagined recombining um, uh, Mongol power here, um, uh, he needed to make a certain argument for breaking down the, the divides between the Mongol people to ultimately then support a kind of reshuffling of the whole thing back into the shape it had before, in which the Mongols uh, uh, were in, in the, the world of the outer Mongolia was ruled from uh, Qing, Qing China, from, from, from Beijing. And, and uh, his vision of res restoring the Russian Empire was woefully incomplete. We see very little description of how it's going to operate. The only, the only uh, hint uh, that we have of a plan 
was that uh, uh, when he invaded, when he moved into, across the, 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 the lines of um, separating Outer Mongolia and Eastern Siberia, uh, there would be so much dissatisfaction uh, ready to explode against the Reds that there would be a sort of rallying to his cause. His cause was that of monarchy. You're, uh, you're, you know, the, the Cossacks and the peasants of this region, they're sort of instinctive monarchists. Pretty soon, there'll be popular support on the side of his campaign, and the Tsar, you know, in some time, I guess, would be restored. But it's not at all worked out. But the fundamental vision is one of returning to a status quo ante. Oh, why in that brief yeah. period was he there? His father, uh, a Baltic German nobleman from, from the Sistine family, the Ungern Sternbergs, uh, 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 sort of stepped into a vocation as a scholar. Uh, he was a geologist. And he seems to have spent two years in the Caucasus as a... Um, as a, uh, a special official within the Caucasus administration, which is actually, in many respects, a typical career for Baltic German uh, a nobleman of a certain cut, and Ungern, uh, little baby Ungern, I mean, toddler Ungern, uh, uh, moved there with the family. There's very little evidence of their, their life in Tiflis, though I did find, you know, I found references to the father in the materials of the um, regional administration, um, and uh, there, the family is listed in one of the uh, address calendars uh, that sort of documents who's who in Tiflis in this, in, in this time. But very, very little is known. Here, there's some, some faint records of what he was up to recorded in um, the genealogical books of the family, um, but it's, it's, it's sort of hard to make out what they were up to. They were part of a very small but influential community of, of uh, you know, Russian imperial administrators. That's why they were there. Yeah. Oh, I saw your hand first. Okay. Uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for a really cool talk. No, thank you. Really, really I don't really have a strong background in this area, but I was very intrigued by uh, your assertion that one of them had a plan not just for imperial restoration in Russia, but in China. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which seems to me an incredibly ambitious <laughs> right. So I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, uh, to, especially given that he was charged with aiding and abetting Japanese imperial mm -hmm. ambitions at that mm -hmm. time. So I'm wondering what kind of plan and what kind of conception he had for the restoration of mm -hmm. China, because it's, like, by 1912, Kumi has, has, has abdicated. Right. He's two years away. Tsai Feng is gone. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no longer an adult claimant to the same throne mm -hmm. that can be you know, mm -hmm. forwarded in any plausible way. Mm -hmm. So given that Kumi's maturation is at least 20 years away, mm -hmm. what exactly does Bonaparte yeah. Right. It's very, it's very hard to know exactly um, how he envisioned the restoration unfolding because, you know, as much as we can see him as a thinker, he's very schematic. He's engaged in um, broad visions with the details presumably to be worked out later. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's reasonable to assume that he uh, was in uh, a certain amount of contact with the Qing loyalists, monarchists who were still um, um, active in the sort of, uh, messy uh, early Republican politics of the moment. Um, we know from even uh, Russian uh, uh, records that he was meeting with um, uh, supporters of, of Wan uh, Shikai 
and that he was aware of that other very brief attempt to re reinstall Puyi. So I think if we allow a certain rationality to his vision, rather than just presuming that he really had no idea and was just talking off of his head, if we, if we allow a certain uh, reasonable perspective on, on the state of political affairs and some ambition to change them in a practical direction, you'd say, well, there's, there's enough evidence to allow for some wishful thinking about restoring the old order. Um, he did not engage in any kind of um, uh, practical planning to, to do that. But there are references to his having spent eight months in Beijing talking to, or in some kind of connection to, uh, Qing loyalist circles. There were, even among uh, Mongol notables, supporters of uh, the Qing emperor, just because the Qing emperor's patronage had provided for stability and power for um, 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 Mongol um, khans. So, you know, I think there's enough uh, in play to allow him to create a, 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 a admittedly seductive and, and uh, somewhat tissue-like vision, but not something that is so wholly mad that it speaks actually to his insanity, to his disconnection from the world, to his extreme eccentricity. In fact, if we put him into his moment, we can see how it's plausible. I mean, the only thing that reassures me that this isn't entirely far-fetched is, you know, there was a point in time when Bolsheviks huddled around cafes in Geneva with just a few hundred francs between them, imagined a world revolution. And a few years later, they were in a position to try and effectuate that end. So in a time of r remarkably ambitious visions of reordering the world, I don't know if this is an ambition that's any more implausible than another. It wasn't hooked to practical measures to bring about the vision. Ultimately, Onyem was defeated by enemies who, they, they were much more successful organizers of of, of the state, of state power, reconstituting states. He, he, didn't, he didn't do that. He dreamed of it, thought about it, shared it in letters, but didn't build it. So. I'm sorry, do you have a question? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so thank you for the talk. It's really good. So um, I liked how you evoked this image of this really mobile, cosmopolitan mm -hmm. kind of sphere within mm -hmm. the Russian Empire. And I thought maybe you could just say a little bit more about that in terms of what were the implications for having such a diverse empire that had this group of extremely powerful people who had such tenuous connections to any mm -hmm. part of it? Mm -hmm. um, was that you know, comparable to other kind of imperial contexts? And was there anything new in the last decades of the empire relative to what had come before in terms of that mobile fund? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Ungern belongs to a, uh, a, a thin sort of of society that was always um, um, exposed to a certain amount of mobility. Uh, I mean, if he, as a Baltic German nobleman, um, he was stepping into the, uh, the highest rungs of the imperial establishment, and uh, uh, men in his family uh, had served in different capacities uh, under previous tsars uh, in the military or the civilian administration. Um, uh, 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 
women within the family were part of a broader marital network that included a number of transnational alliances, um, uh, men too, of course. But um, uh, so in some respects, uh, he, he is already part of a, a, a relatively more mobile uh, imperial community. Um, but I do think, and we can tell from records that I didn't really engage with in this book because they weren't absolutely critical to my, to my story, but we, we can see just because of the increased record keeping on population movement at the time, uh, including by rail and including across borders, uh, that an increasing share of the imperial population was moving, even as the overwhelming peasant uh, population of the state um, um, uh, uh, was still, uh, in profound ways, connected to the small rodina, the little home. Uh, the possibilities for movement, even for very uh, far less privileged people than Ungern, were enormous in this time. And uh, I think one of the uh, sort of storylines of the uh, sort of complicated ending of the empire and then the reformation of something in its spaces that would be called the Soviet Union is a story of the way this sort of swirling works. Um, uh, the, the, you, you asked about whether there is a comparable imperial dynamic of mobility. I, I think actually, certainly you find um, uh, uh, counterparts to Ungern and to his mobile imperial community in the story of, of any number of, of other imperial states and um, the you know the great revolutions of industrialization and, and transportation are increasing um, uh, the the sort of flux of, of, of peoples in this time and I I, I, uh, I guess I see it uh, that mobility as another of these sort of complicated storylines in the ending of the empire on the one hand the mobility is reaffirming some of the connections within this state. Um, but it's also unsettling those connections because it's putting communities together that might necessarily prior have been exposed to each other. Um, it's actually producing some of the, some of the uh, challenges of communication and adaptation that have been usefully um, uh, stepped around before because the mobility wasn't necessarily bringing these questions um, into, into direct tension. You know, at the, at the end of the book, for, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, I, I try to explain that th this period of, um, of Russification and intensification of mobility was a period of a kind of squeezing of the imperial world, a squeezing together, uh, when, by and large, the success of the empire uh, was contained in its looseness, in the sort of bagginess of this empire, in which multiple imperial communities from the east to the west were largely allowed to live on their own terms while abiding by certain basic rules of cohabitation and obedience within the state. Um, the temptation to squeeze the empire, to level it out, to bring it into greater contact, was enormous because that was the, that was the, the promise of modernization, wealth, and power. And it was a temptation that no, uh, no state leadership even, was even hoping to resist in this time, but it brought uh, a really loaded challenge to the oldest solutions to imperial diversity, which was to leave good enough alone, to actually not run these things together too much. You know, and I think Ungern's life, you know, his moment sort of lights up the, you know, what ultimately happens.
Um, the connection with the Kaftan. Yeah. Do you, do you make a connection to Abloma? Oh, in his Asian you know? robe? Yeah, and he has a German uh, counterpart as well. So it's a very interesting almost mm -hmm. um, reversal there between... Oh. Because um, Abloma's always wearing his Kaftan. Right. And, then and he's the slovenly Russian who's right, exactly. always dressed like a, quote, Asiatic... Right? Yeah. And the German in his tunic is always talking about getting up and seizing the world, right. and he's dressed like a good European. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't make anything of that, but I should. I should have uh, put in more of the sartorial politics of, uh, of uh, Russian imperial uh, culture. Um, um, uh, I, you know, I did, I mean, I just used the, the, the cloak in my presentation to you uh, as, a, as a gateway to the story. Um, and in fact, in the book, I, I don't make too, too much of it. The only time that Ungern speaks directly of his appearance is when in one of the um, um, interrogations that followed his capture, he uh, uh, says that he wore the, he began, he, he says to them, or rather in words that are repeated to us by his inter interrogators, that he wore the cloak, um, um, he, he decided to wear this cloak to make himself more visible uh, uh, during the attack on Urga, the, the attack on the Mong Mongol capital that ultimately allowed him to begin to flush the Chinese Republican uh, forces out of Outer Mongolia. And he otherwise uh, doesn't allude to it, and the interrogators uh, presume that he was using it to elicit sympathy from his Mongol allies. But also then, it's very interesting, it clearly becomes uh, a useful um, prop uh, in the final undoing of the man for public purposes. There's more than enough time to dress him up as a convict, uh, to actually roll him out on the theater in his underwear, uh, in a business suit, in just about anything. Uh, but he was kept in his deal. And he was on stage in a show trial in a city that was um, overwhelmingly ethnic Russian in character. And the crowd at the theater uh, would have been overwhelmingly ethnic Russian. It's hard not to see presenting him in this way as presenting him as a great eccentric, uh, even though the indictment of him was that he was the perfect representative of his class. But maybe that's even more power to the cloak, because the cloak is sort of revealing that men of his class could presume to wear a garment like this that is so sort of unintelligible within this environment, you know? And so it's, it's, it's good. He was not tried, for example, closer to the scene of his historical action. If he had been tried there, keeping him in the cloak might actually have worked against the Bolsheviks. They might actually have chosen there to dress him up like a nobleman. So it's, it's curious, but I, I, I have no evidence for any of that. Uh, the, the, uh, the materials that would have lit up the way this, the, the trial was planned um, are either lost or uh, inaccessible. I tried to get material from the, um, the, the, the old KGB archives, the sort of FSB archives, um, and I was told that nothing was available. You know, there was nothing, but you know, I have no idea. Uh, uh, I found other materials that suggest that, the, the, that there was a plan for the trial. The trial has a plan. And, you know, I mean, you can read the, the printed transcripts, which are surely redacted, but they do seem to suggest a kind of operation. But I, I actually never saw the the original screenplay, you know, what was intended. Uh, and there could well be there some mention of his dress. Um, certainly there's no effort, there's no record during this period when he was intensely observed of him ever not wearing 
this garment. It was just his uniform by this stage, the last stage of his life. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to say. Oh, is that okay? Sure. Okay. Well, I want to thank you first of all for opening your kitchen. <laughs> really had a unique opportunity to see what is not in the book and how the book was conceived and, and produced. Um, so I, I really appreciate this, and I have um, one question. So, how did you meet the Baron? How did, how, did, how did you find him? <laughs> oh, you mean how did I uh, yeah, how did you choose come how across this story to begin with? Yeah. yeah. So how did yeah. you find your character to lead right, the story, right. to guide right. you and the readers? Right. I guess there's a sort of deeper backdrop. I mean, when I first discovered his story, um, I, I um, was intrigued. I just found re uh, references to him in the reading I was doing about um, you know, the empire in eastern Siberia and uh, the time of the Civil War. <laughs> And um, uh, I found him largely aphorized the way he was in esteemed Professor Kotkin's talk and book. Uh, because Ungern appears in the book. I wasn't at your talk, but I've read the book. And Ungern gets about five pages in, in uh, Kotkin's, I think, really remarkable uh, study of Stalin, this first volume. Um, but they're not the five pages I would have written. They're actually five pages of a kind of mad crazy man out on the edges of the empire where things are falling apart. Um, and uh, a sort of a symbol of, of an uncontrolled space that then in Kotkin's kind of neat little telling and then insertion in the broader narrative becomes the site of the first Soviet satellite. You know, Mongolia before the GDR. You know, Mongolia before Finland. You know. This is where the first sort of uh, uh, Soviet Union beyond its borders was made. And Ungern is sort of delivered to us in Kotkin's treatment, as it was in countless other books that I read, as the ironic servant of Soviet power, because he goes into Mongolia, then makes this quixotic attempt, it seems, given the forces arranged against him, to try and bust back into Red Russia. He's overwhelmed, and while he's about 500 miles away from Urga, uh, another Red force actually enters the Mongol capital and takes things over. In time, the, the Soviet patronage of Mongolian independence becomes absolutely critical to ensuring that the Chinese do not return. I mean, that, that seems pretty clear. Uh, but whether Ungern really played that decisive role or not, uh, I think it's subject to a little more debate than is usually given to it in um, these treatments. So I, I saw sort of references to Ungern uh, along those lines, and there was just enough in the description of the story to of, of the man to suggest it would be a very interesting story. But it actually took me much longer to figure out that um, that uh, what he could really do for uh, someone interested in the empire was to light up a picture of the whole thing. Now I was thinking that I could explore his experience to try and figure out this borderland in this contentious, you know, impossibly complicated moment of the Civil War. That's how I started reading about him. And then I realized um, that in some respects I'd be following on, a, on already well-covered ground because if there was any part of Ungern's story that had ever been told, it was precisely that moment. I might t tell it differently, but I might in the same uh, respect be missing all the things that hadn't been told, not about him, but through him about the world that he lived in. And that's when I had a, a kind of shuddering of my thinking. And um, I organized my um, plan for the book completely differently. So the book, you know, whereas other treatments of Ungern are 
10% everything up to 1921, 90% uh, two and a half years between uh, you know, the beginning of the Civil War in Eastern Siberia and his death. Uh, uh, my treatment is much more even treatment of all the different periods and, and importantly, the places of his life. And, um, and uh, what that did was profoundly uh, uh, change my, my confidence in finding the man because he is simply not visible. I mean, until that, that last moment of his life, when he becomes a historical figure, in as much as we decide that he's important enough to write down who he is, um, he's, he's, he's not recorded. I mean, he's recorded because he exists in imperial institutions, the military, very good at keeping track of people, and the nobility, even better at keeping track of people, because we don't want to let the wrong people in. <laughs> so the nobility are always, uh, I mean, certainly, the nobility of the Russian Empire, um, uh, very scrupulously following who's a member and who's not, who's marrying who, who's going where, who's related to whom. And he is recorded in that fashion. But otherwise, um, you can't say he's much more than a name on lists for uh, nine-tenths of his life. Well, I think with that, um, if you want to learn more, you'll have to buy the book. <laughs> uh, right. uh, but I want to thank very much um, uh, Dr. Sunderland for, oh, for coming out all the way from Cincinnati to join us. Thanks again to Dr. Lena Campbell for organizing this. Um, unfortunately, we do have an event following right, here right. in about five minutes, so we do need to clear the room. But again, thank you very much. Thank you.